Hello and welcome to the Sense of Place podcast. Now in today's episode we're going to be exploring the world of dark tourism and my guest to help me do that is Dr Philip Stone. Philip's based at the University of Central Lancashire and is the founder and director of the Institute for Dark Tourism Research, which is pretty much the hub for all research surrounding dark tourism. Now before I give you the rundown of some of the things me and Phil discuss, I'd like to thank the following people who've donated to my Kofi goal, which aims to cover the yearly fees of hosting and maintaining this podcast. So a big thank you to Aaron, Dave Lachlan, also Amanda, Richard, and I got an anonymous donation of £5, so thank you to you too, you probably know who you are. And at the time of this recording, I'm 43% of the way through the goal, which is amazing. And as I've said before, if you don't want to part with your coins, that's absolutely fine. The podcast is free. However, a rating and review is another great way to support me and the show. And a thank you to Hair by Slice, (laughs) I guess that's how you say it. Uh, They left me a rating and review on iTunes, so thanks a lot. And finally, I'd also like to thank my new Patreon supporters, Ed, Beck and Mike. I really appreciate your commitment to regularly supporting the podcast and I hope you enjoy the little extra bits I post for you over on Patreon. Now let's get into the rundown. So we begin the show by finding out what dark tourism is and where the term originates. We then look at the idea of people becoming desensitised to sites of atrocity as time goes by. How Phil got into researching dark tourism and founded the Institute of Dark Tourism. Dark tourist sites that have evoked a strong sense of place in Phil. The relationship between COVID-19 and dark tourism. Why people are so obsessed and interested in murder sites. And finally, what drives people to visit sites of death, disaster and destruction. So we'll crack on with today's episode now and I really hope you enjoy it. To start, it would be great if you could just tell the listeners, you know, what dark tourism is and where does this term originate from? simple answer is, it's a a brand, it's a scholarly brand, really a label, whatever, however you want to describe it, to suggest there are places within the visitor economy that have death and disaster as its main function, the main core of, of visiting these places. So that's, I guess, where the dark comes into this kind of the dark, even though there's a very subjective uh, term. So the dark is, is suggesting there's death, disaster, something sinister, something macabre going on. And then the tourism bit is about that movement of people of, you know, these are attractions, museums, memorial sites, uh, places that are attracting visitors en masse right across the world. And we've termed that kind of thing called dark tourism, a very universal term. Do you feel like that term's quite a recent thing or, you know, that, that it's since it's been created or is it something that's just been going on forever and, you know, people have now called it dark tourism? Yeah, I wrote a paper back in 2005. Um, I'm getting old, I feel few ages ago. Um, but 15 years ago, I, I called it an old concept in a new world. And that's really how it probably had this, right, dark tourism. It's an old idea, um, but the new contemporary world has given it a name. And what's happened is, is by giving it a name, people are, are more aware of it, have, have become kind of intrigued, and certainly from different disciplines. That's one of the real success 
stories of dark tourism um, as a field of study has brought in historians, anthropologists, human geographers, um, sociologists, business people, um, artists, even people from medicine, for example, are all now looking at this, how we encounter the corpse within dark tourism um, and the visitor economy. So in that sense, it's, it's, it's a new thing. But again, I go back to this, this, the fact that it's a, a label, a, a brand. Yeah, I feel like it really came to the forefront just for the general public with that David Farrier documentary on Netflix, yeah. didn't it? Like, have you seen that? Yeah, he contacted me about three years before he made that. Did he? Yeah. Um, and yeah, he wanted to know what Dark Tourism was. And there's been various, there's been, to be honest with you, there's been better documentaries made. Um, but because they're not on Netflix, they're not as, not as well received. Uh, before that, um, and he called it the Dark Tourist. Now I've I've said in many papers, and I've even had a book chapter called the Dark Tourist, and declared there's no such thing as a Dark Tourist. If if Dark Tourism is a research brand, that suggests there's got to be a Dark Tourist that goes with it. Well, there's not because that suggests that people are, you know, the word dark suggests a kind of a deviance, kind of a malpractice, and you know, Dark Tourists are you and me, really interested in our social world and visiting places that are intriguing that are um that are fascinating that have really upset us our collective conscience as it were so places like auschwitz or Birk, uh, auschwitz birkenau or um, ground zero or the killing fields of cambodia those are places those black spots in society on, on the landscape as it were that really interest us but there's nothing dark about visiting them. You know, it's, it's about getting the narrative right. It's about getting the, the story of what's gone on. And that raises all sorts of different issues. I suppose that's true. But do you feel like when it comes to sites, there's kind of different types of dark tourist sites? Because I feel like Outsfitch is more, you know, the historical. You see how dreadful something was. Whereas some of them, like, to be fair, like the ones I saw in that Netflix documentary, they more seem for the thrill, people who are interested, not interested in that aspect. They are interested in the sick and twisted elements of the site. Yeah, and that raises a number of issues. The one, the, one of the first issues is the, the, the definitional debate is how you define it. It really matters little, I think, in my mind. You know, I've been researching the subject for the best part of 20 years. And it matters little what we do, what we agree on in terms of what is dark tourism. It's what we disagree on, um, and it's a universal definition to incorporate many shades of dark tourism, as it were. And I try to conceptualise that with the dark tourism spectrum model. So there are places that might be conceived darker um, than others because of where they are, or the time scale, or the political response to them. That which was spoken about being, you know, the site of the Holocaust in the darker common sense of the word, um, as opposed to, say, something which has happened many hundreds of years ago, the Spanish um, Inquisition, for example, um, which is essentially persecution against uh, Catholics. So there's a kind of a, there's a chronological distance here. There's a time scale. Can it become lighter over time? Well, you know, that's very subjective. Yeah, I think it kind of does to some extent. And because I've been to Outswitch, that's probably like the only dark tourist site I've been to. And I remember there was some girl there and she was taking selfies in the gas chambers and smiling. And I just found it really weird and horrible. I thought, how could you be doing that? How can you be smiling at something so awful and wanting to take a selfie? But 
maybe for her already she'd become disassociated with the events and didn't really see it for what it was, you know. And what darker the after you right there, I mean, one of the big things that's come up in my research again and again and again over the years is the idea of tools photography and more latterly um, the, the selfie. And I asked the question in a, in a paper coming up, is, are the selfies selfish? Mm. And no, it's about, it's about that egotistical way of placing yourself in a, in a site that is a site of horror, a site of atrocity, and saying, I'm here, I've survived, um, sort of thing. So the selfie is not, at first glance, it, 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 it kind of might seem disrespectful because of that very shallow kind of conspicuous consumption, I'm here, look at me. But when you delve deeper into it, something else is going on, which is a bit more, a bit more profound. But that's photography generally of how we, we capture that two gaze, as it were. But you, you, you just to mention on, on Auschwitz, uh, you know, Auschwitz has used this kind of this epitome of dark tourism and has become very popular. You know, over two million people visit a year or thereabouts. And I'm often asked, why is it so popular? Well, one of the main reasons, of course, is um, it's become part of mainstream tourism in the, in the Krakow area. Budget airlines have opened up that part of Poland. Auschwitz is, as a site of conscience, is 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 being morphed into the into the uh, into the visit economy. So when we talk about visitation and popularity of dark tourism, you know, the, 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 it's it's quite it's not rocket science. This is about the idea of mobility and the people getting there and and push and pull factors and, and marketing. Um, you know, I'm an ex marketeer in front of in business and. You know, I, I can market for the best. <laughs> um, and that's exactly what I've done with Dark Tourism as a research brand is, is take it to market. Yeah, this is exactly it, isn't it? You say it's a label, it's a brand, and I suppose it kind of is because it's a tourist thing. It's like if you label this yeah. Dark Tourism, people are like, oh, what's that? I want to go. I want to see it. Yeah, and some people hate the term, of course. They don't want to be seen as, as being Dark Tourism. I know I've spoken to Auschwitz um, on various occasions, um, the people who create and, and um um, are in charge down there and they dislike the term for obvious reasons because the suggestion is a dark tourist when really it's a site of pilgrimage and it's, a, it's the world's largest graveyard in, in a lot of a lot of ways so the man they're, they're memory managers and that raises all sorts of political issues and issues of um, what you call dissidence heritage and tensions in memory and how we remember and what we forget mm. And it has massive, massive implications because it becomes a, a mass product. You know, um, going back to the Netflix series, you've got this kind of voyeuristic tabloid television going on, looking at dark tours and looking at probably the, the worst of behavior, when in reality, the vast, vast majority, certainly in my research, people don't act like that. You know, the, the, you're looking for the macabre, you're looking for the Victorian freak show in dark tourism. And Netflix did that very well, and it was successful because of that. It's, so that's what puts you off that documentary a bit, just because it, it, it focuses more on that element of it, the sort of glamour. Well, not glamour, I don't know if that's the right word. but Yeah, it's, it's tabloid. It's yeah, tabloid tabloid. yeah. That's what it was, and it is what it is. Um, you know, that kind of, is it Louis Thoreau? I can't Louis Thoreau, do you mean? Or? He wants to, he, that's, the, that's the guy. Yeah, thank you. Um, it reminds me very much of that is the subject becomes him and, his, his kind of absorption into the into the, the subject run really um, is, is very egotistical. 
there's, there's, there's a wonderful documentary done for um, History Today. Um, it was done by a Canadian company called Barna Alpha way back in, oh, when did I get involved in that? 2006, 2007. And what he did was allow the camera to do the talking. There was no, no narrative, no presenter, no speaking heads. And it, it followed the dark tourists, in inverted commas, around places like Auschwitz or place in Canada was a, a, an old nuclear Cold War bunker and various other places. The killing fields got featured in there. And what that did was follow the, the, the tourists around, the people around, and let them make the story. And that was much more fascinating way of looking at dark tourism. And something that we, we teach here at the, at the University of Central Lancashire, we do a 15-week course as part of a, de- a wider management degree, sociology degree in tourism. Um, and we, 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 we really hone in on some of those, those issues over the 15 uh, weeks or so. Yeah. I mean, also, how did you yourself get into this? Because you said you, was it market research you did? And now you're like the head of the Institute for Dark Tourism. So like, how on earth did you go from that to this? Well, in a, in a nutshell, I mean, I, I, I am actually a qualified chef. Oh, I started chefing. Yeah. You've done <laughs> it all, haven't really you? <laughs> so I have worked in professional kitchens, not very long, for a couple of years. But I, I, I've always been kind of within hospitality, catering, tourism management within the visitor economy. And I started off, so go back to 18 years old, as a chef, and then went into management very quickly, the restaurant management, then into um, casino management, project management, and then into holiday park management. And then left that, went into management consultancy uh, in my late 20s, and then did a master's degree came into academia, um, I didn't like consultancy, I must admit, I conned people in the consultant for a living, hence I was a consultant. Um, <laughs> and it was a very shallow industry, I, I, I thought, but I still like that kind of teaching, that problem solving. And um, one of my first ever, ever jobs um, was, a, was a placement on my, my college course, and it was teaching uh, home economics, of all things. <laughs> So I used to teach 15-year-old girls and boys how to make pineapple upside down cakes. And I loved it. I loved the idea of teaching. So that never left me. And then I, I, in my early 30s, um, I, I, I moved to a college here up in the Northwest um, and started teaching management uh, degrees. And then moved to UCLan in 2004. And it kind of morphed and did a PhD from there. And it kind of morphed into the business subjects and the sociology, and that's where my heart... I was, I was once, once described as a business manager in the head with a social science at heart. And I think that, that kind of drives my research philosophy. It's about looking beyond what is actually happening and, and why. So, yeah, in a nutshell, I went from chef to manager to consultant to, to teacher to academic. It was a kind of a linear process there. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, like when you obviously doing your other jobs as like the chef, the manager, were you at the time sort of interested in dark tourist sites? Were you visiting them and looking at, into them and that? I've always been fascinated by history and the sense of history and the sense of place. That place, you know, I, I just managed a holiday park up in the Highlands of Scotland and, you know, it was near a site um, in Clodden and, and, and that kind of romanticised way of battles and Scottish identity and nationhood and victimhood and all the rest of it, I thought. But those are terms I wouldn't use, certainly as a, 
a holiday park manager, but I was fascinated nevertheless. And when I came into teaching the first time in 2001, it would be, I was asked to supervise a dissertation for a student, uh, a lady called Rebecca. I can't remember her surname. I'm sorry, Rebecca. I can't remember her surname. But Rebecca was, um, she was doing something on dark tourism. And I joined, I think, in the March time. So she was coming in the end of it, and I was kind of tasked with supervising the end of her dissertation. And I said, oh, what's that? And it was really, it was a student, an undergraduate student, who inspired me to look at more closely what dark tourism was. So I read her work, and yeah, that's how I came, that's how I was inspired. It all kind of fell into place in the end. It did, it fell into place, and it was her that really inspired me to start looking at the subject, because I was... My master's degree was on landscape um, ideologies of how we perceive landscape for, for tourism. So I'm, I'm, that kind of sense of place has always kind of been there in, in various guises. And then I, I, I spoke to my uh, friend and colleague at the time who was, who, well, he was going to supervise a, a PhD, supervise my PhD. And I said, I, uh, Richard Charlie, and I said, Richard, I've turned to the dark side. <laughs> and he said, he says, incidentally, so have I. So independently, he was he had come across the subject. And it was a guy called John Lennon. Not the John Lennon, but John Lennon. God, he must person. have got a time at school being called John Lennon, <laughs> wasn't he? Um, he's a professor who I, I now know and uh, friends and colleagues with. Um, but he really came to the fore with the terminology, dark tourism, back in, well, 1996 was a paper that he had been published, him and a guy called Malcolm Foley. But it was really John that propelled the, the, the subject. And then another professor, uh, Tony Seaton, at the same time as John, in fact, they were office together in Glasgow in 1996, talking about these places across the world, these twos and places that have a commonality of death, dying and destruction, yet they haven't got a brand, they haven't got a name. And John Lennon being an ex, he's a management consultant as well, um, into marketing and you know, he leads a very successful institute up at the uh, Glasgow Caledonia University. He came up with the idea of this thing called dark tourism. Whereas Tony Seaton, he says, oh, it's a bit more than that. Tony mm. Seaton took a much more academic, scholarly approach to it, as it were. And he called it thanatourism. Uh, thanatos being the Greek for death, the personification of death. Ology being the study. So thanatology, thanatourism, all played on that word. And the two kind of terms, certainly in the, in the literature, but it was dark tourism that kind of won through in, in this kind of attractiveness, as it were, to students in the media. Yeah. So what, in the end, led you to make the Institute for Dark Tourism? And, I mean, what did you hope it would achieve? What was the aim with it? It's a, yeah, academia is a funny old place. It, it can be a, it, It's very competitive, but also very collaborative. You've got to get the balance right between... Uh, top dog and those who are willing to, to, to work with people. So it's a very strange environment. Um, consultancy is very cutthroat. You know, this spirit of the survival, that's what I found, was under the illusion of helping people. Where academia is very much is helping people, but it's it can be... I mean, I work for a wonderful university, I must admit. Um, but I have experience of other places where the work environment can be quite intense some places you know even bordering on the on, on the um, on the bullying as it were but in my place that's that's not the case but what what happened was there were certain subjects in our department that got um showcased um and dark tourism was because even though there's lots of things going on in my, in my department 
I used to shout about it louder. So as a, as a Geordie, I'm from the northeast of England and Newcastle, um, we have a saying, shy bairns get out for Christmas, which is a Geordie way of shy children, if they don't speak, they'll get no presents for Christmas if they don't shout about it. <laughs> so shy bairns for Christmas. So I kind of shouted about my research. It was got to, uh, got noticed by my managers, got supported very much by my managers at the time. Though I had an idea for the Institute back in 2005, 2006, it was six years later that we actually did a kind of a universal formal approach, university formal approach to it. And we launched it as a kind of a, a hub, a scholarly hub, as it were, to bring subjects together. And that's exactly what it's done mm. uh, from right across the world. Um, it truly is a global kind of subject. I work with people uh, on... Well, the, the last book we did was the Handbook of Dark Tourism Research, the seminal reference text, and I managed to get an author contributing from every single continent. It is a really global um, subject, and the Institute is really that shop window to showcase dark tourism at UCLan. I can, I can go to any university um, and take the Institute with me. It, but, um, that's kind of the way I built the Institute, um, as a shop, literally as a shop window, and um, but you kind of become known because of the work I certainly done then and, and other colleagues, including Richard Sharpley and increasingly uh, Dr. Dan Wright as well. Lucky you did that marketing because I think it's it's coming handy for you there. <laughs> Again, it goes like that kind of you know internal politics and academia can be cutthroat for some people. If you don't enjoy it um, or you're not very good at it, um, you can get left behind. Um, so I, I, I looked at that and I, I thought, well, I want to work with colleagues very much in a collaborative sense, um, but at the same time, I want to be known for something, doctors and something I've been known for. Yeah. Um, when it comes to the sites, do you yourself, do you have a particular one that's ever really evoked a strong sense of place in you? Like you thought, wow, this is just yeah, giving the, you the feelings. The danger of sales is, uh, is you, as a researcher, as a professional researcher, you can become sanitized in these sort of places. And we talk about safeguarding of research respondents. What we don't talk about a lot is safeguarding of the researcher. And yeah, you, you, when I first went to Auschwitz, for example, uh, which I did my some of my PhD research on, it was kind of, whoa, you know, we're here, that sense of place. But it was almost a kind of familiar place because I'd seen it so many times in popular culture that I was preconditioned to be there. Um, and that's another story. That's another kind of mm. being there, not being there. But the one that's really kind of evoked a proper emotion in me, almost tears, is it was Ground Zero. And very quickly, the story is behind that. I've been at Ground Zero many, many times from 2002 right up to 2010, almost every year, kind of a longitudinal study um, of how Ground Zero took on this kind of sacred place or space to become a place, as it were. And I was in the, in the very early days, it must have been 2003, 2004, I can't remember the exact day. I was doing some interviewing on uh, Liberty Street outside the, the, the centre. At the time, there was no government centre, but kind of a, a family centre that they put together in an old delicatessen um, opposite um, the Twin Towers. And that became a focal point, a kind of a, an attraction, a memorial, a museum. And I was in there doing some interviews, and I came across a, an exhibition, a photograph. And the family, the victims' families, had donated these photographs of people 
who had died in the Twin Towers. And those photographs are very much you and I. This is where the mortality mediation idea comes in. We're, we're, we don't look upon the dead, we look upon ourselves, essentially. So these photographs are just of ordinary people, ordinary situations, you know, grannies having Christmas dinner with their loved ones or whatever, or children playing in the park with the fathers and mothers. And so what happens is you relate, or I certainly did in some of the research for this hour, you relate yourself to what's going on in the narrative. And there was one particular narrative with a, a guy called Gary Hagg. Um, I hope I pronounced his name right. And it was from his son. It's Gary who had been in one of the Twin Towers and was killed in the Twin Towers. And the family had did not, um, uh, given a, a picture and a little postcard from his son called Kevin. Now, Kevin, at the time in 2003, 2002, I think was about five or six years old. He's, he's, he's preschool. He's very young school. But he had wrote a letter or a postcard to his dead father. And in it, it said, and it, this has obviously been donated to the, the exhibition, it says, Dear Daddy, and I remember the words up by heart, Dear Daddy, I hope you're having a great time in heaven. Love, Kevin. Oh. And I thought, yeah, oh. And I thought, oh, man, I've got tears in my eyes. And I was thinking about it. Because what happened was, my son at the time, Aaron, he would have been about six or seven himself. And immediately, it wasn't Kevin's voice I heard. I don't know who Kevin is and I don't know the family. But what they did, they mediated a story, a narrative, where ordinary living had become the significant dead. And that is what dark tourism is about, is taking on the significance of death and mortality, often in violent or calamitous circumstances. And Kevin being a, you know, he had a very profound influence. I don't know if, if he ever he is this. Thank you, Kevin. Um, you'll, be a, you'll be a grown man now, I, I guess. But, um, yeah, he was writing his father a, a last letter, and immediately that, that struck a chord with me, my family circumstances. Mm. Um, and, yeah, that was kind of that mediation effect, that mortality, mediating your own sense of mortality has been a key thing in dark tourism studies. Do you think as well, because, you know, earlier you were saying kind of the the older the site, the less we relate to it do you think that also because the fact that is such a recent tragedy that happened it seemed more as if well this could have happened to me or I could have been in this situation and it you're right and what happens is is this thing called chronological distance this idea of memories being lost at time is really important because how do we keep the memories alive as it were because you go to Auschwitz for example I'm using Auschwitz as the kind of the the counter argument here and you 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 look at the pictures and if I'm honest with you, you don't see yourselves in those pictures. You don't recognize yourself. You don't recognize these are almost um, very emancipated men and women and, and, and children that you don't recognize. They have been tortured. They have been, um, you know, abused. But when you take them photographs and you put it in the context or you colorize the photographs, for example, so that's a very powerful way of going back to photography you then begin to be drawn into a story, into a narrative. Rather than just a photograph of a, a dead Holocaust victim, there's got to be a story around that. It's, that person's got to be given a name, an age, a context. And then we start relating ourselves back to it. And I think this is where memory management comes in in dark tourism. It's putting photographs on the wall and saying all these people died is, right, that's fine. 
But unless people are engaging, this is the co-creation of meaning here, unless people are engaging with those photographs or those exhibitions, we, we're not making sense. We're not making sense of it. And that's the, that's the task really for contemporary museology and getting that, that narrative across and getting the, the authenticity, which is a, you know, a very contentious concept, uh, quite, quite right in these places. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the colour photos because that's something I've been really interested in lately because it does, as soon as they're coloured, they seem more human, these people from the past. I think there's when they're black and white, there's it almost has a haunted feel to it. That's kind of how I felt when I went to Auschwitz. It was tragic and also haunting. Like you say, we're so far removed from those people. I feel like I could still appreciate it, but it, I also found it, like I say, haunting, kind of creepy and... Yeah. Um, Whereas I suppose the the Ground Zero site that would feel more relatable now, rather than haunting. I don't know. I don't know how you felt if you found it haunting. Yeah, there's, just... there's, there's haunting elements to it. Um, you know, haunting rather rather than being kind of the supernatural thing is is beyond the supernatural, and it's it's be honest be honest with you, it's more about the natural. These are natural things happening. These are this is not supernatural. It's but it's yet yeah, it's still haunting in the sense that it. It creates a a spectra, a vision of what can happen. Um, and Ground Zero, for example, was a spectra, wounded American pride, its hegemonic power, the political response to that. It caused all sorts of issues. But what's missing in the narrative of Ground Zero, and it still is largely, even with the formal visit attractions there in museums, is why it happened. And what happened afterwards is well documented. But why it happened, that that kind of, there's an allusion to it. I mean, nobody has the, the right answer to that. But there's, there's that, that kind of debate is snuffed out in these sort of places. And we use the, the, the event, the tragedy of Ground Zeroes to really project a sense of victimhood and nation building and, and these kind of political ideologies of the war on terror, for example. But was, you know, the, be no such thing a war and terror it doesn't make sense so yeah the, the dark, that's where dark tourism has a, a very profound kind of macro impact it's not just about tourism and being frivolous and being hedonistic and visiting these places with your ice cream and your flip-flops and shorts these are real people visiting these places consuming a narrative a story and taking away with you that sense of of being and well-being, and if that story is not right, or it's not truthful, or it's not complete, that raises all sorts of issues longer, longer term. On that point, I mean, you raise a point about you, you've made. The, I don't know how old you are, but my my students now, I have a bunch of students in front of me every year who are 18, 19, 20, 21. But that doesn't change. It's like a ship moving from the horizon. You know, I'm, I'm getting older, but my students are not. <laughs> Um, and when I started talking about, I'm talking about undergraduates here, when I started talking about dark tourism and, and, and ground zero, um, when we launched the, the, the dedicated module at UCLan back in 2005, those students would have been 14, 15, 16, perhaps, when ground zero happened. It was very fresh for them. Now, I'm talking to students who weren't even born. Or better. Yeah. So now we've got the story has got to be told and retold all the time, and with retelling tales, of course, you get a sense of embellishment, and that's the that's the danger. 
Talking of sort of modern dark tourist sites, you recently did write an article discussing COVID-19 and what you think its effects on the future of it will be. Mm. I mean, would you be able to discuss how you feel the relationship between dark tourism and COVID might play out? Yeah, I mean, I wrote that article reasonably quickly back in uh, when COVID was hitting the the fan, as it were, uh, back in the summer, June, I think it was, 2020. Um, and it was COVID to me was kind of a, it was real. I, I, I questioned the modeling in terms of the pandemic, um, in terms of the response and that. I think everyone's questioning that now. But hindsight and foresight are completely different things. But um, before I'd answer your question, the COVID became very personal to me because my father died of it. In the oh, October. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. Well, certainly. He was, I mean, when I say died of it, he died with, with COVID. Um, I think he was really tipped over into mortality, as it were, by COVID. He was 70, 76 with some of the conditions. But what it did is, is, is he became a statistic on the television. So every time he, the TV came on and he'd say 99,000 people have died, he was one of those thousands of people. And that continues to grow. Um, it's tailed off, thankfully. Um, in, in recent weeks, but what we've got here is kind of a, a mass um, death event, as it were, happening in modern society, is how do we remember those ordinary people who have become significant, certainly in statistics and political responses, like my father, is how do we remember them collectively? So the idea, and there's a big story at the moment about memorialization and who we remember and who we don't, you know, that kind of dissonance in, in, in tensions in memory. Um, you know, do we remember white middle-class slave owners or do we remember black um, young slaves? It's, it's getting that tension. That tension is always going to be there. Um, and you know, context and concepts are, are different things. So I've got thinking about coronavirus and thinking about how do we remember the ordinary dead here? Not the significant dead, not the celebrities, the ordinary people like my father. Um, and I think the time is coming where there will be there will be memorial services, but there has to be a focal point, a foci, and the National Arboretum, for example, in, in Staffordshire can provide that, or a, a monument or statue um, can provide that. And tourism is really about that consumption of the memory of people visiting these places and thinking about what happened in 2020. So in 10 years time, when this is, you know, a memory, um, we will look back on and say, well, society was locked up, not locked down, locked up for a whole year almost. And, and it's still ongoing. Issues of, of, of disaster modeling, issues of political responses, of human rights, of protests, all sorts of different issues um, have been raised by this pandemic. And we've got to remember not only the dead, but the consequences of, of our responses. Because if we don't, just one final point, if we don't, we'll repeat the sins of the past. And the, and I made the point in that article, that conversation article, about Spanish flu. You know, almost 100 years later, history repeated itself, and Spanish flu killed more people than it did in the whole of the Great War. But it was largely forgotten. There was a a very purposeful, selective amnesia regarding the Spanish flu in, terming, in terms of remembering it and remembering the lessons, because people didn't want to. They were tired of death and disaster, you know, in, in the early 1920s after the Great War. So it was largely forgotten, yet now 
the virus, and there'll be more viruses to come, uh, more pandemics, is how we respond to those. So it's about keeping it into the public imagination, and I think tourism could do that. Yeah, that's an interesting point you make about them not wanting to remember it, because I feel, to be honest with you, I think a lot of people now won't want to remember coronavirus. I think it's been quite a miserable time for everybody. And Absolutely. I think you're absolutely nailed it on the head. Let's move on forward. You know, we have, without history repeating itself, and I hope it doesn't repeat itself too much, but there's a kind of an idea now that we're going to go into the roaring 20s. I hope so. <laughs> We hope so, yeah, you know, but then we have the depression of the 30s and the fascism of the 40s. So we've got to be very careful of what we wish for and remembering, because if we don't, you know, the old adage, history repeats itself, it will. It is quite Um, scary, really, how um, 100 years on, I know not completely, but there is a slight mirroring, isn't there? And (laughs) we haven't learned from the past at all, it seems. So for learning of the past is people have a very selective memory of the past you know that heritage and history are completely different things you know history is what's happened and heritage is a version of what's happened and people in tourism in charge of tourism are are, are heritage managers they are museum operators they are visit attraction managers they are but essentially they are memory managers they are memory sorry managing the collective memory for everybody with that comes political power comes authority, comes responsibility. Um, and this is one of the things that we, we look at from not only a sociological point of view here at UCLan, but also a business point of view. You know, how do we milk the macabre, as it were, make money out of, of these sort of places whilst protecting the memory, the narrative of, of, of people who have gone before us? Yeah, it's a difficult balance, really, isn't it? Trying to get it right, it's, like it's, trying to... It's a, do it I, respectfully I like it. and without being, you know, Absolutely. just completely like an amusement park or something. What it does need doing is shining a light on it. I think that's what dark tourism as a field of study has done over the past 15 years. And certainly the Institute and myself has tried to shine a light on different places, those darker recesses of the visit economy that have always been there. Going back to the old concept in a new world, you know, the Grand Tour in the 1500s took in Pompeii, for example. It was a sight to be seen. You know, so dark tourism as a concept has been very much with us for a long time. You could argue, you could argue going back to the idea of visiting relics, you know, back to the, the, the pilgrimages of, of the saints, you know, the relics, the bones of, of dead people um, who have been canonised and religiousized. Um, it's kind of early dark tourism. Yeah, no, it is, isn't it, really? It is, yeah. yeah. So it's just been, it's been going for God knows how long. Kind of, I mean, the Roman... Gladiatorial games could be, you know, termed a kind of a dark tourist attraction. Murder was a kind of the mainstay, the leisure mainstay of, of that, that, that era. I think people are still kind of obsessed with murder because think of all those Netflix shows and like uh, people who are obsessed with um, murderers and psychopaths and they love tracking them and following them and um, and it's particularly women, which is interesting. Do you yeah. do you have any thoughts on that or do you know much? You know. I- why Why are they so obsessed? I do, I do have many, many thoughts on that. Incidentally, I've just, uh, before I came on air here, is I, I, I was talking to one of my PhD candidates um, who is looking at uh, the portrayal of women in dark tourism sites, particular murder sites, and how, from a feminist point of view, is how women have been, been um, used and abused, not only to, to the murder, but to the aftermath as well, in terms of the visualisation. 
So that, that's a fascinating and a very contemporary, very original way of, of looking at particular murder sites and how the victim and the villain um, are often treated. And often the villain is, is more kind of attention is paid to the villain because we're fascinated by by him or her, because most largely it's, it's, it's male, it's him, and their lives rather than the victim's lives. So I've been writing about Jack the Ripper in a new guidebook that's coming out in, in September and about Jack the Ripper tours. Now, I'm not particularly interested in Jack the Ripper tours. What I'm interested in is the victims. But the victims in Jack the Ripper, for example, have been largely portrayed as um, prostitutes and women who have fallen from grace, social grace. And they used, even the mortuary photographs, they used a kind of a, a backdrop to explain the, the, the Ripper, the Ripper given this, this mystical, romanticized name because he was never caught. And what we're interested in really is the, the ordinary and the extraordinary. But the victim's voices are forgotten. Those are real women, real people, real feelings, you know, wives, uh, sisters, daughters, you know. A lot of those women had fallen to hard times. Um, they weren't necessarily sex workers in the sense that we think they are. You know, a lot of them had mental health issues and alcohol problems and drug issues. And the victims of Jack the Ripper now largely lost. We remember Jack, you know, ask, ask what was the name of Jack the Ripper and you'll say Jack because everyone's heard of him. Ask your name the five victims of, or the, um, was it five or seven? I can't remember. Um, there you go. I, I can't remember. Mm-hmm. I've been writing about them last week, the victims of, the, of, of Jack the Ripper. So that just shows it's ingrained in us in the sense that victims and villains are treated differently in dark tours. And I'm getting into the more sensational tabloid stuff here, which have been lost to history. No, massively it has. I Because that's the thing, sometimes, you know, if you see those programmes on Netflix about people who've been murdered, I just, sometimes if I've watched one and I finish it, I have a horrible feeling. I just feel like this is sick and wrong, like, because this poor person and people are like, oh, yeah, next crime documentary, can't wait to watch it. They love it. They they don't even think about that poor person. It's They're real. They're dead. They're kind of removed from that. And I don't know if it is all this sensationalisation of it. It is this reality and being the surreal as well, because what we do, we divorce ourselves from that kind of reality. And we're fascinated. I don't think we're fascinated by murder per se. I think we're fascinated by, I'm not a psychologist, but this is my take on it, is I think we're fascinated by the extraordinary versus the ordinary. And murder is extraordinary. And psychopaths are extraordinary. And it's something outside our, and I'm talking about, let's call them normal people. I'm talking about you and I. I'm talking about the mass majority of, of the population who can abide by rules and regulations and have moral codes, whether religious or secular. And we have that. We have a way of living. But there are a, a, a significant minority of people who cannot live by the rules of society. And we're fascinated of why that is the case. And murder being one of them, you know, one of the, the seven, uh, one of the, 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 um, the Ten Commandments, you know, as it were, contain a religious point of view is it's beyond us, it's beyond the vast majority of us. But ways portrayed by media and tourism being part of that media industry later on is how are the victims remembered? And I think they're largely forgotten, if I'm honest with you, in a lot of They are, definitely. I think they are. So when we look at Fred West, for example, in Cromwell Street, 25 Cromwell Street, can you remember that one? No. Ah, there you go. So you, I'm guessing you're in your 20s. 
I am. I'm, I've just turned 27. Ah, there you go. So you're a young 27. I'm an old 49. So in 1996, <laughs> I moved to Gloucester. I, I worked as part of the managing casinos and, and clubs down there um, in my early career. I moved to Gloucester. And at the time in Gloucester in the UK was a serial killer called Fred West and his wife, Rose West. This was very peculiar that there were a man and wife serial killing. She was in, e- equally involved in, in the killings as much as her, as much as him, rather. And what happened was there was a massive media circus. When I moved, so he got found out in 1995, thereabouts, but it had been going on since the, mid, uh, sorry, the late 1960s. And he'd killed many, many girls, including his own daughters, raped them, sexually abused them, hid them in the cellars, buried them in the walls, in the gardens. And Cromwell Street, 25 Cromwell Street, became this, this macabre centre of murder in the mid-1990s. And I was there at the time, and I, I remember getting off the train, meeting my colleagues, and immediately he said, do you want to go and see Cromwell Street? Nothing else. And I go, oh, and he took me down. And before I even got to my hotel, um, he took me down Cromwell Street. That was my first ever introduction to Gloucester in 1996 when I arrived. And at the time, the police were still doing their investigation. But what's since then, um, Fred West incidentally committed suicide in the year after, and Rose West is serving a life, life um, sentence in, in Durham. What happened afterwards was Gloucester authorities decided that they didn't want Cromwell Street to become this kind of murder mecca, the site of almost these this murder pilgrimages. And they've actually taken down the house, Cromwell Street, 25 Cromwell Street. So if you imagine in Gloucester, you know, some beautiful Georgian houses. This isn't quite a, a deprived part of the city, but still beautiful houses. And they've knocked the house down. They've not only knocked the house down, they actually took the bricks, brick by brick, and made it into dust and use it as hardcore. So nothing left of that. And what they put in the place, not a memorial garden, not a blue plaque, no memorials at all, is a walkthrough. And the last time I was there, just gone in January, because that's going into my guidebook as well, is there's a walkthrough. It's a cut through from one street to another where the gardens were. So you're walking across the former graves of these poor girls. And there's, it's been obliterated from history, and it's been purposefully obliterated. So we remember, well, some of us remember Fred West. Can we remember the victims? No, because there's no sense of memorialization there at all. Do you feel like that's something you want to change, to be different within dark tourism, or do you think it's better to just keep focusing on the sort of villains? Um, yeah, I would like certainly change it, but it's got to be done with... With a stakeholder approach, it can't be me, you know, setting my ivory tower saying you must remember this, you can't remember that. Because what happened in the Gloucester case is um, six months later, I actually met, met, incidentally, one of the daughters of the Wests. She didn't know me, I didn't know her. Um, she had been abused by her father. She had survived a father's murderous intents, as opposed to her siblings. Um, and she was out for her birthday. I think she was out for the first time and she came to the club in Gloucester. And it was her birthday and somebody said, oh, that's, um, that's such and such West's daughter. And I remember giving her a box of chocolates from behind the bar that we, we had and saying, you know, welcome, da-da-da. Now, I just remember looking at the girl and I remember 
thinking, you know, how broken you must be. How, but, you know, I, I, was, I was putting a kind of a, a very subjective male connotation on it. Now, she's still alive. Now, whether she wants to be remembered in that sense is another thing. So we've got to take a, a stakeholder approach to this. It, it, it's all fine and well when people are dead and gone and buried. It's what we remember. But when people are still alive and still victims, it's, it's, it's really... To be honest, they probably don't even want to have a plaque there. They don't want to remember it. They probably just want to get on with their lives, don't they? Certainly, certainly the problems, perhaps the residents of Gloucester might feel, feel that. My ex-wife is from Gloucester. I visit the place still often. My son is down in Cheltenham. Um, so I, I still have time with Gloucester. And I, I, I do walk around that place. And the fact that you've not heard of Fred West speaks volumes. And the fact that not only the, the, the atrocity has been forgotten you know, of this particular serial killer who had murdered girls with his wife, Rosebeth. That's, that's a peculiar thing in this case. And because the authorities, those in charge, obliterated from the landscape if you look at the work of Ken Foote in America, Black Spots in Amer of America, um, you know, there's a process of remembrance, obliteration being one of them, sanctification or rectification being another, of how we purposely remember or how we purposely forget the, the site of atrocity. And that one has certainly been obliterated from memory. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I'll ask you one last question, just kind of a roundup. Um in your opinion, I mean, what do you think is the main drive for people who want to visit these sites of destruction and disaster and death? What do you think it is? I mean, could you even say? I mean, it seems quite a hard thing to even decipher, to be honest with you, because everyone is different. Yeah, I think it is. I think it's, it, you're getting kind of the motivations um, of visiting dark tourism. And I've said for a number of years now, the motivations are less important than the consequences. The motivation is quite, uh, to me, to visit these sort of places are quite obvious. And when I say they're obvious, they are advertised within mainstream tourism. So you go to Ground Zero or go to New York and Ground Zero is advertised with the Empire State Building in, in Central Park. It's part of the mainstream. But equally, and again, I'm writing a guidebook at the moment, which brings dark tourism to the lay market, is about searching for those memorials of people who are less well-known. And to me, I think people um, have an inherent sense of history. They have an inherent sense of intrigue about things that have happened in the past, particularly if they can relate to them. So that's the kind of the motivations, intrigue, uh, interest, pain, respects. But the effect, the consequences of that is very much tied into emotions and what you do with that. And when you walk away from places like Auschwitz, it's not what motivated you to visit, it's what are the consequences of your visit. Mm important to me and that's what we're looking at now in terms of effect and emotions and how it really drives future narratives and future disasters and future remembrances of these places no definitely i agree with that and um if people want to find out more about your work at the institute of dark tourism where can they go for all that they can uh, put in Google Dark Tourism, Philip Stone, and it'll come up. That's, that's probably the best way to do it now. <laughs> yeah. Dark Tourism, Philip, Philip Stone, Dark Tourism, and uh, my university and the institute will come up that way. So there we have it. That was Dr. Philip Stone. As he said, if you want to find out more about him, Google him, <laughs> along with the words Dark Tourism. For anything else Sense of Place podcast related, please head over to senseofplacepod.com. 
other than that that's all from me so i hope you have a great week and i will speak to you again soon